Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15 as we continue our series, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times. Let's join Dr. Newfeld as he brings the message, The Authentic Life. I came to know Christ as my Savior many years ago now, and I remember the joy of being accepted by God and being forgiven. I remember sitting in my car outside of Hope, British Columbia, weeping with a sense of relief that my life of running from God was finally over. Peace had flooded my soul. My eternity was secure. I was accepted by God. But I also remember the two struggles that I had that didn't automatically go away. I had a drinking problem, and I had developed a particularly foul vocabulary. My mouth had become a sewer. I was not fit for polite company. I I remember thinking that I needed to find a way to end those two horrible habits. How could I tell anyone that I had come to know Christ when I would slip into profanity whenever I became angry, or occasionally I had alcohol on my breath? I felt my experience of inviting Christ into my life was real enough, but at the same time, I didn't sometimes feel authentic. I I felt like a fake. I, I felt that I could be exposed. Now, I need to add a little note to this, and this is due entirely to the grace of God. Those two matters, alcohol and profanity, they seemed to disappear very quickly. And let me also add that in those early years, I I thought those two matters, my drinking and my mouth, well, they were the two greatest issues anyone could face in the Christian life. And I've quickly come to realize that those two matters were small matters. The real issues, the issues of pride and failure to take the promises of God seriously, those were far greater issues. And to those Well, it has taken a lifetime, and I have not yet defeated them completely. I've come to realize that there are many Christians who feel less than authentic. But the pathway to living an authentic Christian lifestyle is an exciting pathway. There are so many things to learn and so many exciting victories to be won. You know, those of you who have recently started on your new life in Christ, you need to understand that in time, you're hardly going to recognize yourself. In time, you'll find that you're winning some very significant battles. Some of you will find that you're beginning to gain control over your temper. You know, some are beginning to gain control over your own body, and you don't have to give in to sexual temptation. Some of you are learning not to think of yourself first. You're learning to love others. I mean, the examples go on and on. But regardless of your individual story, you can testify that since you met Christ, you've been on a pathway of becoming authentically Christian in the way that you live your life. But even while you feel that, you might also at the very same time realize that in some other areas, you do feel stuck. There's less growth than you would have wanted, and your flesh is putting up an incredible fight, refusing to give ground. You feel defeated. You feel like a fraud. In your darkest moment, you wonder if you're authentic at all. You've been going around in circles, and so it seems, and and you think, at least at times, I hope no one discovers how weak and how sinful I really am. Please don't give up. Yeah, some ground is hard to win, but remember, he who made promises is faithful, and he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. In the four verses we're going to look at today, we're going to see some basic instructions on living an authentic Christian life, and I promise you, 
What is said is not too difficult. But here's the key. It's going to help us. God never asks us to fight for holiness on our own. It's not an individual sport. It's part of your commitment to the local body of believers. So let's read our text. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 15. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, you'll remember that Paul had spent three weeks teaching in a synagogue in Thessalonica, and then shortly after that, he was forced to leave the city because of persecution. He had been worried what happened to the small church that he had begun in Thessalonica. And then he finds out that they're not only surviving, but they're thriving. In a short period of time, they've begun the pathway to authentic living. They had leaders in place, and they were learning the precepts of Christian discipleship. Their lives should be an encouragement to us. The same God who helped them along in their journey can do the same with us. In a way, the end of 1 Thessalonians seems like a grab bag of miscellaneous instructions for Christians, and in a sense, that's exactly what it is. But also, it's more than that. These verses give us some foundational elements of authentic Christian living, that is, from the ground up. In our passage, we're going to see two instructions for the church as a whole, that is, how the church is to behave in such a way that holiness will happen for all. You know, I call these instructions for the church. Then we have six things that the church must teach for holiness to happen. But before we begin, I hope you see how important your local church is. The Christian life really isn't an individual affair at all. You know, some years ago, I remember a conversation I had with an individual who confessed faith in Christ, but he said, I don't believe in the church. You know, I merely reminded him that every single book in the New Testament was addressed to a church. Even those that looked like they were addressed to an individual, like First and Second Timothy and Titus, well, they're written to men who have been given leadership or pastoral authority in their church. If you aren't part of a church, there's really nothing in the Bible for you. And this is seen very keenly in this section, which speaks of Christian holiness or Christian authenticity or growth into the image of Christ. So let's start with those instructions given to all of God's people in terms of how they are to act as a church. So we find two instructions, and the first is in verses 12 to 13a. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. You know, this passage teaches the, the local church to honor and to love their pastors. You know, notice the work of a Christian leader is not that they serve on a board. Now, let me stop and say nothing wrong with serving on a board. It's an honorable thing. But a Christian leader is identified as someone who admonishes God's people. That's the identifying mark of a leader. They teach God's people. They preach. They disciple. They care for the souls of God's people. You know, interestingly enough, the Greek word which our Bible translates as respect in verse 12 is actually the word to know. In other words, Paul is telling these believers they should know their leaders. Now, before you jump to the conclusion— uh, and see this as a command to, to take your pastor out for coffee or lunch, 
You know, the Greek word actually speaks about identifying the pastors as the leader, as well as acknowledging him as the leader, respecting him as the leader, the leader that God has called him to be. Let me add a few comments to that. People who are ignorant of the role God gives pastors usually fall, at least in my experience, into two categories. Either they'll put their pastor on a pedestal and believe their pastor can do no wrong, in which case they misunderstand how their pastor needs also to grow in his faith and how he can contribute to your growth. See, then on the other hand, there are those who utterly vilify their pastors and mistrust him and are both suspicious and easy to condemn. But in both cases, they don't know the pastor. That is, they don't know that they are as human as they are. They don't know what God has called that person to do. You know, in truth, all pastors struggle with holiness as everyone does. They struggle with sin. They need to learn the power of the Spirit. They need to rely on the Word of God. They need to trust in the promises. And furthermore, they have differing personalities even as the rest of us do. You know, some are more easily introverts and some more easily extroverts. Look, there are sins that disqualify a man from being a pastor, but often pastors are criticized for sins that do not disqualify them. And where there are no disqualifying sins, well, we need to continue to pray and to respect and to support. Now, Paul gives characteristics of faithful Christian leaders. First of all, do you notice they work hard? Leadership, pastoral leadership, demands sacrifice of time and of energy, but it also demands all manner of other sacrifices as well. Secondly, the passage says that the leader is over you. Hebrews 13, 17 says the following, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. You know, well, give an account to whom? Well, to God. Leaders must give an account for the progress in the lives of the believers under their care. You see, leadership is not only a joy, it's also a burden. Every Christian leader understands that one day he's going to stand before God and he's going to give an account for the way in which he's taught and he's led and he's discipled and encouraged and admonished God's people. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes the bi-monthly magazine, Truth and Life. This year, Truth and Life has had a unique discipleship focus, with each issue highlighting a different marker of discipleship. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission and provide trustworthy Bible resources at no cost. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. Some of you might remember how we used to build the older houses, I mean, before we had drywall in our interior walls. There was a kind of board on the walls that were nailed to the studs, and occasionally 
the nails would pop out a bit, and then you'd have to nail them back in. That's what admonishing is. It's pounding the nails back in place. It's, it's holding you solid in your relationship to Christ. It's the task of Christian leadership. It's a charge that's been given by Christ to his leaders. Then Paul adds in verse 13, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, I said that there were two commands given to the church. The first, honor your leaders. And now in verse 14b comes the second, be at peace among yourselves. Let peace, let peaceful relations mark the way in which you live. Avoid divisive leaders. Have nothing to do with leaders who easily bring accusations against others. Philippians 2 verse 3, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, of course, leaders can model this peace among one another, and they need to. But it's an approach that all believers need to do towards each other. We need not only to honor our leaders, we need to honor one another. We treat others as we would want to be treated. We look for ways in which Christ's peace could reign among us. That's of great value to every church. It makes the gospel attractive to the world, and it teaches us a great deal of the love of God. Now then, having spoken about the duties of all believers to their local church, Paul next moves to the task of the church as a whole and the task of leaders in regard to members of the church. And so Paul gives six ways in which the church must care for its people. Number one, admonish the idle. It implies that there are those who are idle. They've chosen that particular lifestyle, and they need to know it's unacceptable. You know, it's fascinating that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul will spend a long paragraph in warning those who are idle. He demands for believers that we not eat anyone else's bread without paying for it. He makes it a general rule that if anyone will not work, he shall not eat. So the truth is that hard work, paying for our own way, that's a Christian virtue. You know, I hasten to add that this does not mean that we have no compassion on the poor or those who have been laid off or those who have special needs and can't work or those who are desperately trying to find work but can't. You know, it's often been said that finding a job is in itself a full-time job, and so some people will need help. But for those who are less than motivated, the word is simple. Holiness demands that each of us be known for hard work. You know, it's been said that in those early years of communism in China, Leaders of factories often looked the other way when Christians illegally met after hours on premises to read scripture and pray together. The factory leaders didn't report them because these factory leaders often understood that when a man or woman became a Christian, they actually worked harder. They believed that you worked for your employer as unto the Lord. And so the more Christians in their factory, the higher were the levels of production. And this is still a demand for all Christians today. Idleness, laziness, lack of commitment to work, it's seen as a sign of estrangement from God. Number two, encourage the faint-hearted. Whereas idle people need to be admonished, faint-hearted people need to be encouraged. You know, what does it mean to be faint-hearted? Well, some have suggested that the word should be translated as timid. Encourage the timid or encourage people who are afraid and fearful or lacking courage and boldness. You know, it is possible that a number of the people in the Thessalonian church were afraid because of the persecution. 
It may be that others were afraid that they would die before the second coming. Well, truth is, we don't know why some were timid, but they didn't need to be admonished. They needed to be encouraged by faithful, and loving, and caring people, and, and we need the same. Number three, help the weak. The Greek word here is often used in the New Testament to describe those who are spiritually immature, or it might even refer to someone who's not yet come to Christ. So, for instance, in Romans 5, verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were weak means while we still were outside of Christ. But then again, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, it says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. See, in 1 Corinthians, the weak are those who are believers, but they have not yet been trained and their consciences are not yet held by the Word of God. You know, I think in all probability, Paul mentions that the Thessalonian church is to help those who as of yet are spiritually immature, have not yet been trained in the ways of Christ, and truthfully, every church needs to put great effort into that enterprise. Number four, be patient with all. Be patient with everyone. I wonder how many of us wanted someone to be patient with us when we were struggling or when we were wrestling with a persistent sin, when we didn't understand a biblical principle, when we couldn't see the benevolent hand of God's providence in our lives. And since that's what we needed, perhaps now we need to ask God for more patience towards everyone. Patience demands that we don't react when someone says something that might not be appropriate or acts in a way that's not consistent with his calling in Christ. Indeed, when I think of patience, I think of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, that love is patient and kind. Or I think of 2 Peter 3, verse 9, which tells us that the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Think of how patient God has been with us, and then learn from God and emphasize patience towards all. Now, number five, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. It's true that every church is filled with hurting people, but notice also that the church is filled with people who actually hurt others. You know, I've said this before, no place can love you like the local church, and no place can wound you like the local church. Now, what do you do with your wounds? And here I think it's best not to understate the woundedness that some people feel from their local fellowship. Sometimes it was simply a thoughtless word, but on most occasions, it's worse than that. You know, it does no value here to recount some of the wounds that people have received from others at church, but as we all know, when those wounds come from others who profess faith in Christ, those wounds are often potent. In our passage today, does not talk about forgiving those who persecute us. I mean, Jesus speaks about that and the New Testament does as well. And furthermore, I have on many occasions spoken about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, reconciliation should always be held out as a genuine hope, but as we all know, in the real world, reconciliation is not always possible. The offender may say he or she has done nothing wrong at all and may even justify his or her actions. You know, such is the reality of living in a fallen world. I mean, most stories that involve wounds don't actually have happy endings. But we can and must forgive, even where no reconciliation is possible. But for some of us, the matter of forgiveness, especially 
when we feel we've been deeply betrayed and hurt, is asking so much. Where do we begin? See, I think Paul tells us where to begin. Teach God's people that they must not repay anyone evil for what was done to them. Make up your mind that you will leave repayment to God. Just never go to revenge. No chance to even the score. And then, having presented that, Paul then gives us the other side of the action. Number six, seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, rather than seeking revenge, seek to bless. Look, I know, this is hard for us to do, especially when the wounds run deep, but we can do it. If it is in your power to bless, do it. Don't withhold it. Remember that you are an enemy of God, and in that state, God sent you a Savior. And whatever sins were done against you, they are not as severe as the sins you have committed against God. So therefore, be like God and respond with good. You know, I began today by speaking about my early task of growing as a new believer. But I also said that God gave me grace. He gave me the power of the Spirit, and I found that there was more grace from God than there were sins of mine. But for our part, Where do we begin, all of us, in our growth in holiness? Isn't it interesting that for Paul, the place to begin is our relationship with our church, both with the leadership and then with one another. Instead of dealing with holiness individually, as I did early on, Paul helps to show us where to start. Begin with holiness in context of the fellowship of believers where Christ has placed you. John, thanks so much. Uh, But I have a question for you, and I think it's a troubling one in some respects for today. You made an interesting statement when you said there are some sins that would disqualify a pastor from leadership and others that would not. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think we need to come to terms with the fact that whoever is in pastoral leadership is sinful or has committed sins and will continue to do so and is imperfect. And until Christ comes again, that's going to be what we find. So we need to recognize that, you know, some sins, especially the sexual variety or the abuse of persons, I mean, these things would disqualify a man from service. Teaching of heresy does the same. But there are lots of sins that we fall into that should not. And we need that spirit of grace. Thanks so much, John. Now remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The definition of legacy, something that is passed on. But legacy can mean so much more. Your faith, core values, your character, or the life you lead. Maybe this is news to you, but Back to the Bible Canada partners with Advisors with Purpose to provide expert estate planning at no cost. This is a third-party service, so Back to the Bible Canada is not involved in the planning or how you would steward your legacy. We simply hope to provide access to an opportunity to ensure you leave a legacy that will accurately represent your wishes for future generations and faithful stewardship of all God has entrusted to you. So if you're interested or would like more information, call Advisors with Purpose directly at 1-866-336-3315 and let them know you're a friend of Back to the Bible Canada or visit backtothebible.ca slash legacy.